This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Let's read Psalm 50 together. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things have you done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have called us together as your people to worship you. We recognize, as this psalm did, that we can't add anything to you. And we so often worship you according to our own will. We so often worship you with hearts that are far from you. But Lord, we recognize that you are gracious, you are kind, and you continue to call us back, and you continue to purify our worship through your Son. So Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is that, sinful though we are, you still love us. You still work in our hearts. You are still sanctifying us. You are still shaping us as your people more and more to be the people that you have called us to be. And it's for that reason that as we gather, we can rejoice and we can have hope and look forward to that time when finally we'll be freed from sin, we'll be freed from all those things that ail us because of this fallen world that we live in. Because you are God 
because you are king, because you are the one who is mighty and powerful to do all of those things for your glory and for our good. And God, we recognize this morning that there are so many who are, are suffering right now, whether it's with illness, whether it's with, uh, we know there are several people who have suffered falls lately and are recovering from that in various stages. We pray that you would grant quick recoveries, that you would grant uh, health and uh, comfort in the midst of that, freedom from pain, and the hope of, of the fact that you are the God over, over our bodies, over the way that we recover, over the way that you have designed us. Lord, for those who are doubting, who are fearful, who are concerned for whatever reason, Lord, I pray that you would grant peace, that you would remind us, even in this moment, that you are King and Lord over all, that all is working out according to your sovereign plan, and therefore we can trust you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your church to be people who support one another, who love one another, who care for one another. It's so easy to get our eyes simply on ourselves and our own needs and miss the needs of those around us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to love our brothers and sisters in the church well. Lord, help us to be that body that you've called us to be. Lord, this morning you've gathered us together here to hear your word. So I pray that as we hear the word preached, as, as Pastor Aaron comes and speaks to us, I pray that you would take those words and that you would apply them to our hearts from the scriptures. God, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would remind us of who you are and that you would remind us of who you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be shaped and molded as we sit here this morning. God, I pray that as we leave in a little while, that you would send us out different than we came in. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified in all that's said and done here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Glad to be with you. If you do have your copy of God's Word, please leave it open there to Psalm 50. As we continue in our series on the Summer of Wisdom, we're looking specifically at the wisdom of worship. You know, I go back to my days as a little boy in my father's house, and in that house he had a wood shop. It was in the basement. It took up about half of our basement. And I remember as a little boy always being drawn to that area. There's something about all those power tools that just excited me. When I would hear them turn on, I just couldn't help myself but, but get my nose right as close as I could to everything that was taking place in that wood shop. But there was a rule in that wood shop that all of us boys had to follow if we were going to work with Dad. And that rule was, you measure twice and you cut once. I see some of your own mouths moving. You know that rule. Well, that rule got modified for me. It was, Aaron, you measure three or four or five times and then you cut. And I had to learn that that was important because an accurate measurement matters, doesn't it? Because if, if the measurements are just slightly off, what you're trying to build will just become a mess. Well, friends, if that's true in our woodworking, if that's true in the building of things in this life, how much more true is it regarding our worship? Specifically when we have the view of God in mind. And see, God understands how important it is for us to worship appropriately. 
He sets before his people a right perspective. God sends a message specifically to his people. Look at verse 1. It says, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks. Now, what's interesting about this is most of the psalms are the psalmist crying out to God. That's why we're drawn to him. We, we get to hear our own expressions, our own, our own frustrations, our own worries and concerns. And in, that's why we're drawn to the psalms. We, we experience that in the psalms. But there are a few psalms, and this being one of them, where it's God specifically and directly speaking to his creation. It's very important that you notice in this psalm that the one speaking identifies himself. In verse 1, he says, the mighty one, God, the Lord. This is the one who speaks and summons the earth. Three names are used there for God, mighty one, the term God or Elohim, and ultimately the word the Lord, which is the covenant name for God. It's this covenant name of God that he ends with that ultimately draws attention to the very place where God reveals himself. Look at verse 2, out of Zion, that holy hill in the Old Testament, that place where the temple of God was, where the people of God brought their sacrifices, their offerings to worship God. It's there that God is saying, it's there in the worship that we really recognize God. It's there in worship that we come to a place of truly knowing who God is. Here in our text, God identifies himself by a description of his coming. Notice this, he comes in perfection. He comes in beauty, according to verse 2. He comes as a devouring fire, a mighty tempest, according to verse 3. And verse 4 says, he calls that he may judge his people. Verse 4, all throughout this text, God is setting the perspective straight. And that perspective is that God is in charge. That God is the one who rules over all. He is the all-powerful one. He is the beautiful one. He is the one who has absolute authority. This is the standard by which God begins to speak to his people. And as he begins to speak, God wants to set the record straight. He wants to give a right perspective. So what's the first thing God lets the people know? He needs nothing from them. Friends, pause on that truth for one moment. God needs nothing from us. Theologians talk about the self-existence of God. God doesn't exist because he's in our imaginations. God doesn't exist because he, he, he requires something from us. God exists because he is God. Before the very foundation of the world, God was. God wants to set the record straight. He needs nothing from us. Look what he says at verse 10 and 11. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. God's saying, I already own everything. I'm sovereign over all. I don't need what you can bring me. I'm not dependent upon you. 
Everything is in my possession. I require nothing. Verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is already mine. I don't need to go and beg crumbs from you, my creation, so that I might be sustained, God says. I'm the creator. You're the created. God needs nothing, absolutely nothing from us. God doesn't need our sacrifices to sustain him. Again, God is self-sustaining. Look at verse 13. He says, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God goes to great lengths to say, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your efforts. I don't need anything. How often we wrongly think of our sacrifices. How often we wrongly think of our efforts as though somehow we're helping God out. But God doesn't need our service. We don't provide for God's existence. The truth of the matter is, this is very humbling. It's a very humbling reminder to all of us because ultimately it teaches this theological point. We cannot earn favor with God. We cannot earn God's favor. It's not that if we throw a couple extra dollars in the offering, then God will be happy with us. It's not simply that if we sing a little louder when the hymns are being sung, that now God is ultimately satisfied with us. God requires and needs nothing from us. And yet the most astounding thing, according to verse 8, is that he yet still accepts our sacrifices. Of all the things he has against them, one thing he doesn't have against them is that they regularly do bring their sacrifices before him. But keep this in mind, God doesn't need them. But by bringing them, we recognize something greater our need, our dependence. See, church, it's from a humble heart that one truly sacrifices for the Lord. It's when one person truly understands all that God has given me, how can I hold anything back? He doesn't need it, but I present it out of gratitude. I present it out of love. I recognize how wonderful God is. That's why in verse 14, God says, Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's the sacrifice that's acceptable to God. Not one that you think you're earning something by giving, but truly and genuine thanksgiving that brings joy to God. So a right perspective is understanding that God needs nothing from us. And while that truth is before us, we are reminded we are in desperate need of him. Look at verse 15. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you. 
Friends, just for a moment, soak in the grace of that verse. Call upon me. Cry out to me. In the day of your trouble, because it's coming. Trouble is all around us. We live in a fallen world. We experience sin on every level. We've been sinned against, and we sin against others. This is a regular routine in our life, and, and God says, in the midst of that trouble, call out, and I'll deliver you. What grace. What love. See, we don't understand this kind of love because in most relationships, it's what can I get from you? I'll help you if, but not with God. He needs nothing from us, and yet he willingly steps into our mess. What a beautiful picture of what grace really means. How graciously he offers to help in our time of need. It's, it's even better than the example that Jesus gives of the Good Samaritan. As great as that story is, that the Good Samaritan, the very enemy of the man who, who's there lying on the side of the road, he stops and he helps him and he pays for all of his medical needs. As good as that story is, the story of the gospel is yet greater. Because God steps in. The creator, the sustainer, the all-sufficient one. In fact, the very one we have offended with our sin. He steps in. And to do what? To help. To deliver. To save. Listen to the words of Paul from Romans 5, he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, but God showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in the very state of sin, Paul says, Christ died for us. While we were in the very act of disobedience, Christ died for us. What a beautiful picture of grace. God who needs absolutely nothing condescends by taking on human flesh and entering this world to die. To die for sinners. Church, don't miss this. Our sacrifices don't sustain God. But the very point of the sacrifice is to remind us of our need of God. Think about all the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. There were all types of offerings and sacrifices that were required. Always pointing to the fact that man is a sinner in need of forgiveness. The trespasses, the sins, the rebellion. And yet all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament only point forward 
to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. One of the most beautiful pictures is found in the New Testament, early in the New Testament, where John the Baptist is on the scene and he's out doing the things that John the Baptist does. He's baptizing and preaching and and eating wild honey and locusts. He's out doing the things that John the Baptist does. And there in one special moment, John chapter 1, verse 29, he does something extraordinary. He points to Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John the Baptist understood that there was the promise There was salvation. There was hope. All of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of the mess. And there God stepped in. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. In chapter 10, he says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We understand that Jesus came and he went to the cross and he went to the cross one time in history and at that one time in history, all of the sacrifices pointed to him for that ultimate sacrifice paid for it all. We couldn't earn our place. We couldn't earn our keep. We were just always reminded of our need. Friends, understand this. Jesus' sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, is the ultimate sacrifice, which all the Old Testament pointed to. It's because of Jesus, not our own effort, that we are deemed faithful and righteous and pure. Even this Old Testament book of Psalms is pointing us forward, looking forward to what Christ would do. Notice the call in verse 5 to the faithful ones. How can we be called faithful? outside of the blood of Christ. It's not by our effort, but by what Christ would do that we are saved. The Old Testament looked forward to him. We look back at him, but all are saved in him. And so therefore God says, I don't need your goats. I don't need your bulls. But you need me. You need Christ. You need the salvation that only I can provide. Look at the very last line of verse 23. It makes it very clear that it's in Christ that the salvation of God is revealed. God would reveal salvation. Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. For what purpose? to be our ransom, to be our salvation, to be our hope, so that we could be adopted. It's all these truths of Scripture wrapped in that in the fullness of time, Christ came. That's when salvation was revealed. The salvation that God had planned. So friends, I ask you, what's the appropriate response from this right perspective? This understanding that while God doesn't need anything from us, he's willing to be involved in our mess to save sinners. What is the appropriate response for that kind of grace? God doesn't leave it up to us. 
He tells us the appropriate kind of response. Look at verse 15. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's the appropriate response. That's the point. It's a heart of gratitude. Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God does not want empty ritual. God is not seeking anything but thankful hearts. Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. It wasn't the sheep and the lambs. It wasn't the bulls and the rams. It wasn't the pigeons that saved anyone. It was from beginning to end God's gift. And they all pointed to our desperate need of him. So how do we respond? Not by thinking we're attributing anything but acknowledging how thankful we really are. See, thankfulness is ultimately about being satisfied in God's provision. Friends, don't miss that. Thankfulness is ultimately about being satisfied in God's provision. It's about coming and crying out It's about admitting our need. That's what it means to be thankful. It's about resting in the finished work of Christ and not trying to do a bunch of good things, hoping that maybe we can earn a higher seat. It's about being satisfied in the finished work of Christ. It's about resting in the perfect work of Jesus. That's what God desires as a perfect response to his grace. But this psalm offers yet more. It gives us a contrast to the faithful, to the thankful. The contrast is seen in the wicked who are unthankful. In verses 16 through 22, we read of these wicked ones. And what's so astounding is that these wicked ones think they're faithful. And here's why. They think they're faithful because they come to worship. They offer their offerings. They make their promises. Yet their hearts are hard. Look at the end of verse 16. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? There they are in worship, reciting the law of God and making promises to God. And God looks at them and says, what right? God says this because they're unthankful. See, the wicked, God refers to in this psalm, they attend worship, but their religious acts are unacceptable because of their hard hearts. They hate the discipline of the Father. They reject His word, according to verse 17. Rather than thankfulness, they find joy in wickedness, according to verse 18. In verses 19 and 20, we're told that they slander and they lie. But worst of all, in verse 22, they forget God. Even in their acts of worship, 
They're empty. Because they forget God. They forget God by not being absence in their attendance. They're there. They're present. They're not forgetting God that way. So how are they forgetting God? They're forgetting God rather by their absence of right perspective on God. Friends, they hold a wrong view of God. They assume their sacrifices are doing something. They're assuming that that they're making up on their own effort and getting their own position through their own sacrifices to God. They're helping God out. God says no. They have a wrong view. And friends, look at verse 22. Because if we need a wake-up call this morning... Verse 22 for our culture is this. Mark this then. You who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. Did you hear it? Did you hear what God said? Lest you forget me, you will only meet my wrath. Not my joy. My judgment. Not my salvation. And I remind you that these people he's talking to showed up to worship. They brought sacrifice. They put money in the offering plate. They sang praises. But they were empty. And God is angry. Because the only Sacrifice God will accept is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Church, God does not need us. We need him. Church, there are only two responses to this truth. The first is gratitude, which flows from a thankfulness for God's provision in the person and work of Jesus Christ, one who truly recognizes their sin and rests in the finished work of Jesus, not seeking to ever add or ultimately to give to God out of some need that God would have. And the other, a response of hard-heartedness. A hard-heartedness that can be seen by God in those who attend worship, but for the wrong reasons. They quote scripture, but they don't believe it. They hate spiritual discipline, but they love sin. They ultimately have forgotten God, but yet they think God needs them. See, the question before each of us is who are we? Are we the one filled with thanksgiving for God's finished work in Jesus Christ? Or are we the one who has long forgotten our need and God's provision? Friends, I really believe for the church, verse 17 is where it's at. 
Because ultimately, in verse 17, we're told that it's about discipline and how we respond. Now, I know some of you might find this hard to believe, but as a child, I got into some trouble. And when I did, there were times of correction. And what ultimately mattered was not if I got in trouble or not, but how I responded to that correction. The same is true from a biblical perspective. For the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we're approved by him. The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. So for those of us who sit here today, and maybe our view of God has been a little off, it's now about how we respond. For God has told us what he desires. The question is, how will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are so thankful for the grace that's given us. Ephesians reminds us that salvation is not earned, it's gifted. And yet, Lord, how easily in our own religiosity we we twist that around. Well, we may think you brought us into the kingdom. It's our own effort that keeps us there. But Lord, how wrong that is. You need nothing from us. Salvation from beginning to end is 100% you. And so God, may we today hear your voice. May we hear your correction. And may we correct our perspective. May our worship be acceptable because it's built upon the premise of being thankful. God, change our hearts. Mold us more into the image of those who represent you well in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we pray. And God's people said, amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.